Sing, goddess, the, the anger of when Peleus, God son of Achilles. And the earth. Tell me the about a complicated to me equal to the gods that man. On a hang thousand bucklers. Man is Agamemnon. My husband is dead. The work of this right Gentlemen, I'm worse. Would you not forget it? Ever can destroy. Will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. Oh, hello everyone. I guess I'll start us off today because. Um, I'll be leading discussion on Montaigne's essays, so mm. welcome to the Good Fight podcast. Thanks, Artashir. I'm still here. How unfortunate. <laughs> and I'm back. <laughs> this is Chase speaking. I was here last week. Um, great. So here we are. Um, Montaigne's essays. Uh, I've heard different things. I've talked to a couple um, freshmen taking Lit Hum. I heard different reactions. So really briefly, to start off, what did you think of the essays? If you remember, it's been a while. They move here and there really quickly. Sometimes it's difficult to track where he, it's not only going, but where he came from. Yeah. Um, I remember some parts were very engaging and seemed to be very deep. And it's uh, Montaigne presenting his perspectives in a very intriguing manner. But other times, I remember my little professor bringing up, he would be talking about this super deep thing. And the next paragraph is just, so I was eating cabbage this morning. <laughs> and it's hard to follow sometimes because it's so spontaneous. One thing I do remember um, is just how often he's like citing other stuff. It's just like half yeah. of the essays feel like just quotations. And I'm like, okay, interesting. You know, it seems very well read, very well rounded in terms of the sourcing he's using okay okay so the essays are eclectic they're they're a picture of a mind uh, they're a picture of a personality and i think that's part of the polarizing effect they have on people or the fact that you can say you know some parts are super interesting some parts are not and i kind of want to focus on this idea that um montaigne's very explicit about this and we'll talk about that but that you know i have a self and that self is worth writing about because we haven't moved away from that. In fact, we take it for granted nowadays uh, now that most people can read and write and we have access to the Internet. Everyone pretty much has a printing press, a blog, a um, online type journal or just social media. So, I mean, just to start off with, if any of you have ever had something like that, a blog, a journal, um, social media account where you just kind of keep people updated on your life, you know, what was the thinking behind that or can you share some of your experience with that? As someone who had all three, I would say that it's 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 been kind of a journey because, I mean, I, I got a Twitter in fourth grade, and that is, I would say, too early for a kid to have a Twitter account. Oh, man. I had a journal, a virtual journal in high school, and I would, you know, write accounts of my life and also just random reflections. And I also started a political blog in high school that has that has since been Spicy. removed no i i intentionally did not write any opinions on it i only did like feature writing like i would watch c-span and i would report the facts but um but it is kind of an interesting uh historical moment for a kid to be immersed in such like you know self-reflection and reporting things that have to re not just have to do with me but with others and feeling like almost um an interest or even a responsibility at times to do so I've also kept um, a diary and a journal and it began in middle school and my dad told me if I kept a diary every day, he would give me one R&B for every entry I kept. He never held up his end, but later on it became habit and um, especially growing older, I wanted to actively keep a journal because the days are so busy 
And without a journal or a time of self-reflection, it's easy to do things for the sake of doing them. And it's easy to forget why am I doing all of uh, all of these things, taking all of these classes in the first place. But using a journal, it's the opportunity to opportunity for self-discovery and to find more purpose in life. I, the, I think the, the closest I've come to anything of the sort that we're talking about here is freshman year, every month or so, I would type up like a really long Facebook post. And it was just like... They were so good. <laughs> yeah, Chase Chase read... How many of them did you read? I read, I read quite a few. Yeah. Big fan. <laughs> Look at that. So we can talk about what it's like to read someone else's work too. <laughs> um, but they were just like... I mean, a little bit of the self-reflection that you were talking about, Tina, but they were more just like updates on what's going on in my life and the sorts of things I've been reflecting on and thinking about more as a way to keep in touch with the people from my hometown and like give them a picture of what life as a Columbia student in the big city is like, because it's like a big shift from my hometown and all of the family that I know to you know the life that i am living and at the same time too i remember freshman year i was going through like this radical worldview shift and you know i was asking questions to myself that i really never had um and that was kind of hard and i i do think it was it was helpful to me to just work through those in writing Okay. Okay. So this is interesting. We've heard a couple reasons, uh, kind of maintaining a sense of purpose, kind of chronicling a change in one's thinking, writing for oneself, writing for others, those who are close to you. Um, and I think we see a lot of those reasons in Montaigne, but let's talk about that. There's two passages um, that are pretty relevant to that. There's his, at the very beginning of the essays, he has his, um, uh, his, to the reader, message to the reader, and then his essay in book one um, on idleness. And yeah, I mean, based on those passages, why why did Montaigne write? Um, well, it's definitely, it definitely doesn't sound like he wants anyone to read it. <laughs> he says, he says, you would be unreasonable to spend your leisure on so frivolous and vain a subject, namely, thus reader, I am myself the matter of my book. It's like, okay, then why are we reading yeah, but the problem is he writes that, but at the same time he writes to the reader. So that implies that he's expecting a reader. Right. So is he writing for someone or is he not? It's very uh, contradictory. It kind of reminds me of like if you've kept a journal or diary, even if you're writing and you don't anticipate anybody else to read it, you still somehow have an audience in mind that kind of shapes the narrative you're writing. But I mean, I think it's healthy to kind of bring that sort of skepticism to passage especially since like so many people across the world have read this and that this uh, Montaigne has himself like shaped literary history in a way um, and so I think it's I mean you could question like did he really not mean for anybody else to read this or I think I mean it, it's definitely clear that he means for other people to read it but who but, exactly right who exactly is he suggesting oh you know you're gonna waste your time reading this but you, I still want you to read it right it's that sort of like mixed messaging that is hard to understand. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we could talk about do you buy it? 
like do you buy what he's saying is it just modesty or false modesty or what's going on when he says you know you probably shouldn't be you can spend your time better than just reading this um but i think we should take him seriously when he says i am myself the matter of my book because as we've seen it's such a close chronicle of his mind and on idleness he says i kind of write because um i would kind of go crazy if i didn't write all the weird stuff down <laughs> that goes through my head um yeah and to tie this back to our experiences like why do we write why do we make why do we share what we write um and we've touched a little bit about this. Sometimes we share it with um, friends and family members. Sometimes we make it public. And what's the reasoning behind that? See, I really like this question because it's like, as I consider not just Montaigne's writing, but his life itself, that he went and kind of locked himself up in a tower and did all this writing, you know, learned in isolation um, and is stating here and to the reader, like writing about himself and not really expecting there to be an audience, it kind of makes me question what is the purpose of writing? What is the purpose of creating something like a text? Um, and I think you can kind of compare that with the Christian life itself. Like, does God, as, you know, Christian academics, or if God calls you to academia as a Christian, does he call you to work and labor in an institution for yourself, by yourself? Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think um, God calls us to certain places or certain to do certain things for the sake of the world. I think it's the same for academia. God might call us to the ivory tower for the sake of sharing those words with those outside. I, I mean, he does start the first paragraph of To the Reader. He says, I want my memory, right, to kind of live on. It's for my friends and relatives for, you know, when I'm gone. And I kind of relate to that because when I was writing this Facebook post, it was like, oh, I, you know, I'm not talking to all these people. I'm not seeing them, right? But this is me going through this experience. And so it's like, I think it's very interesting, almost as if we think of our writing as like a, uh, an image of ourself. Um, the Epicureans had this uh, thought in physics that um, it, it came from Democritus, but that what we see is actually like little images of things that are like constantly being emitted in all directions and they get caught in our eyes. And so we're seeing like an image of that object. And so it's almost like we see our reading, our writing as something like that. It's like a, a little image of ourselves that we're giving to other people. And that made me think of like uh, Zola from, from uh, the Captain America movies. And he like, they like turn him into a, a big computer, right? Interesting connection there. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so I feel like some people, uh, they're sharing their images more explicit, like, like Ovid in Metamorphoses. Uh, he said that he wrote, he wants to write something so his name will never be forgotten. But I don't think that's why Montaigne is writing this. He does say that he wants his family to have a figment of himself throughout the years. But I feel like he's writing more to remember himself in a sense or to or to keep himself alive. And I mean, in on idleness, he says he could do his mind. Where's the quote? I could do my mind no better service than to leave it in complete idleness to commune with itself, to come to rest and to grow settled. And to me, it feels like by writing, that's how he's finding that rest. That's how he's, that's how, that's how he lives and keeps in touch with his emotions and thoughts. And I think a lot of writing for him, it's also how he communicates and interacts with the world. He interacts with the world by writing down his thoughts, which is why I feel like there are so many quotes in essays. 
um, he's responding to the quotes. He's responding to his environment through writing. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that because, I mean, we're getting to a theme that's very um, dear to my heart. It's the <laughs> idea of relation, writing as a relational endeavor, right? Uh, where, yes, it's to express himself, but also to maintain himself in relationship to others, whether that's the authors from the past he's interacting with, so transcending the boundaries of time or uh, to the, in the past or transcending the boundaries of time in the future by leaving a legacy, transcending the boundaries of space by, you know, communicating with readers in his day who were away from him and, you know, time and space for us reading him, um, you know, long after his time and in a place far away. So I think that's interesting because we have this idea here of the, let's call it the expressive self, um, the expressive self, the self that expresses itself through words, through um, speech. And uh, it finds its home, interestingly, in a skeptical age. Uh, Chase used the word skepticism earlier. And I want to talk about that a little bit too, because we can't talk about Montaigne without talking about his skepticism. Um, you know, his motto was, Kaseja, what do I know? Um, what do I know? And his essays are not attempts to establish knowledge because the word essay, as Chase, you know, what does it mean? Um, trial, I believe. Trial, attempt. That's a good translation. So does anyone know a little bit about the historical context for Montaigne, why he might have been generally skeptical about, I don't know, grand truth claims? Arish, there, oh. you, you sent us the Wikipedia article and I was not about to read that whole thing. <laughs> okay, fine. But this is just... Uh, wars of religion, um, terrible religious wars breaking out in Europe. Um, he's living in the aftershocks of that. Uh, Catholics and Protestants um, tearing each other apart um, in the name of truth. And in the middle of that, Chase, you said he retreats to a tower. He asks, what do I know? And he writes about what? W what's the only thing he feels confident writing about? His self. Himself, right? So it sounds very Cartesian. Do you want to say more about that? Well, I mean, like the whole uh, project that Descartes goes through, right, is uh, like tearing down everything epistemologically that you might know. Uh, and eventually he ends up at nothing except himself and says, look, in order to doubt, I must at least be a thing that is thinking, right? And then from there, he kind of builds everything back out. But it's like that radical breaking down of like, I can't make a claim about anything else, but in make in deciding that I can't make that claim, I all I know is that I can make a claim about myself. Okay, that's that's actually an interesting comparison, especially since Descartes did his you know intellectual discovery and project alone in isolation. Um, so maybe there's a relationship there between self isolation and epistemological uncertainty. Um, and to those of you listening who are in Latham, don't worry, you'll get to Descartes uh, next year. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I like that idea, a skepticism, uncertainty. Um, and let's let's tie that to the question of uh, relational writing as relationship, right? Because Montaigne's like, the only thing I can know then, I can write about is myself. But his project is, I want to share myself with you. So to some extent, he starts his book um, by saying, this book was written in good faith. A bonne foi um, is the French. And, you know, foi has a sense of trust as well. So... You know, you can trust me because I'm talking about myself, which is something I can tell you about. Um, so in a way, knowledge um, is about whose word can I trust? Um, whose words can I trust? And skepticism, skepticism means being doubtful about um, 
you know, people's claims about certain realities. So with all that in mind, let's, let's turn to, let's turn to a couple scripture passages. Um, let's talk about the connection between words and the self and whose words we can trust. Um, Tim, earlier you were talking about your Facebook page um, and you were saying, you know, you said something very interesting. You were saying, this is me. That was kind of the thought back then. And I think we can find that sentiment in scripture. Can someone um, read Luke 6, 45 um, for us? I can read it. Um, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay. Okay. What do you think about that? Um, flesh it out. Um, well, I mean, it reminds me too of one thing that Jesus says, right? That it's not what goes into the mouth, but it's what comes out of the mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what matters. And it seems like in that, in that, in in both cases, we're seeing that, um, like words and uh, the things coming out of our mouths are uh, reflections of what is on the inside, right? It's like a manifestation of. Uh, our our soul or our desires our volition our will yeah yeah words aren't light things in other words they're extensions of ourselves um the little little epicurean images and it's just beaming (laughs) off in every direction yeah i guess so and why are our words so important um i mean where do we get this characteristic that our words can be so reflective of ourselves Uh, i guess that's convoluted can someone just what does Genesis 1, um, 3 say? Yeah, so I mean, I think the image that we get from Scripture is that, you know, one, God has created the whole entire cosmos through speech, through speaking it into being. Um, and not only has he created the cosmos through speech, but that he has created human beings to be made in his image. And so I think characteristic of what it means to be human um, is to reflect God. And considering that, I think our words reflect the importance of speech, that if God's word can create the cosmos then there has to be some type of importance to the words that we speak okay okay so that's good now say more about god's words this connection between words and personhood words and relationship what is god's word or maybe the question could be better put who is god's word (laughs) whoa (laughs) yeah you're pulling out some john 1 1 stuff right there man Uh, john 1 1 you know in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god right um, this idea that, that Christ is the incarnation of God and that as that incarnation, he is the word of God. And to use the language you were using earlier, if our words are reflections of our hearts, like Christ is the perfect reflection of God's heart. Christ is the full image of God and is God in that sense, in a way that our words could never be us. But um, Yeah, there's something very interesting about that that as like our word like the thing that i'm speaking right now is distinct from me but it's also it's also part of me um and so you kind of see that trinitarian theology uh play out in christ being the word or to use the greek word the logos of god made flesh okay so in other words if we learn about a person's heart through their words then you know where do we learn about god and we've been talking about this but where do we most see him um, yeah, I would say considering all of this, then we would see God in his word. And as John 
first chapter of John, so good, so good, uh, tells us that the word was made flesh in the person of Jesus. Um, and so, and I, and we see that in other passages in scripture. I'm thinking of the one where it says that Christ is the manifestation, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the manifestation of God, that when we look at the face of Christ, um, this his physical face that we actually see, we gaze upon the infinite father. Um, it seems almost like we're talking more about Trinitarian theology now. That's good, man. That's good. Yeah, um, there's, I think there's a huge connection between Trinitarian theology and the creative, creative act. Um, mm-hmm. But thinking of all this, then let's go back to the question of skepticism, which, if you recall, we framed as a question of whose word can we trust? And it seems like now, do we have an answer to that or... Um, in what sense do we trust this, uh, these words, um, right? Um, do we trust them as, because I, I assume the people in Montaigne's day said they were trusting the word of God, or they looked to Christ the word, and yet they did things that seemed completely contrary to it. So what does it mean to, mm, how, how, does, how does thinking the word of God is trustworthy? as revealed in Christ, as revealed in scripture, speak to a skeptical age? I think one part of it with, um, and here I'll kind of sound like one of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbegin, where he talks about, um, and he, he writes a lot of stuff on, uh, you know, the pluralist society of the Western world and how the gospel, um, you know, is to be, a, be proclaimed in that context. But he has discussed in his work the gospel in a pluralist society of how all coherent thought like begins at some starting point um and so like you need and this isn't this is even for those who say like oh i don't really claim any absolute truth but there's still always a starting point like what do you actually believe is true um and what and how do you build off from there and so i'd say knowing that um recognizing that christ is the word of god that allows for a starting point um where like actual coherent thought can progress that makes sense um and it's it's trustworthy i mean i think of like jesus in his sermon on the mount where he talks about you know he gives this sermon he says all these words and he says now um if you hear these words also do them um you know show that you actually heard these words and believe them by putting it into practice for those who do my words will be like the man who builds his house on the rock um, and those who don't will be like those who build his house on the sand showing that you know the word of christ he's um a solid foundation. He's a solid starting point, if that makes sense, um, that that allows for a house to be built in which won't be destroyed. Yeah. I think in this skeptical age also, people have a vision of the w- people who claim, okay, uh, people have this caricature of Christians who claim to the inspiration of the word of God, the trustworthiness of the word of God as you know, being closed-minded as emphasizing, you know, certain claims about, you know, creation versus evolution. So uh, as, as primary issues and so on. And as therefore taking these words and um, turning them into factual narratives, I want to be cautious here because I do think the word of God speaks truth in the factual scientific realm. And I think it's wrong uh, the modern tendency to divorce what we call the real world, the factual world from mm-hmm. uh, the relational or the realm of values. But 
let's face it, we do live in a world of Montaigne's, of people who are first hungry for relationship. And I think that when we approach scripture as providing a solid basis for relationship, for words that actually mean something when they're spoken, uh, then that actually is a better starting point. And then we get to, you know, what the scriptures say about, you know, science and so on. And uh, there too, I think, understanding the relational aspect, the personal aspect is important. Um, C.S. Lewis comes up all the time, but he says, you know, scientists, the early scientists believed in the laws of nature because they believed in a lawgiver. And um, we can talk about that more. Um, I, I just want to say, I think one, one thing that's um, coming across my mind right now is uh, in, in terms of skepticism, like uh, you can't be skeptical of everything, right? And this is like I already mentioned Descartes, right? Like at the end of the day, if you're skeptical about everything, it means you have to be skeptical of yourself. But that's just like self-referentially contradictory because then you have to be skeptical of your skepticism, right? Well, how is that possible? It's just, it's like a ridiculous notion. And so like Wayne Grudem at the very beginning of his systematic theology when he's talking about the authority of scripture and uh how trustworthy it is he kind of counter counter argues against this notion that oh you know we shouldn't trust the bible just because it says that it's trustworthy right like we shouldn't uh trust that sort of argument because it's just tautological right but he goes on to say like any any ultimate claim you're going to make about what is trustworthy or not is going to rely on the same sort of circular reasoning. And I think Grace Lita and I actually talked about this like way back when we were in Kentucky. And I don't remember what episode that was, um, but it's this idea. It was one of the beginning episodes. Yeah. Like, why do we trust the Bible? Why is God's word authority? That was probably like the first or second episode. Wow. That goes way back. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just this idea that, look, you you have to trust something, right? And so like radical skepticism is just not a coherent worldview to have. But if you're going to trust something, and this is kind of at the heart of what skepticism is seeking, it's a matter of what can you trust? And ultimately, the skeptic says, I can only trust myself, right? And then the humility I think it takes to say, uh, no, I, I can't trust myself. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about this in a second with like what our words are and how much we can trust our words uh, as the, the picture that scripture gives us there. Um, there's a lot of humility in saying, look, I can't trust my words to the point where, you know, I have to be open even to different interpretations of scripture within the realm of reason but to the point where uh you rest entirely and uh you know the ultimate truth of any claim has to rely on the ultimate arbiter of truth and in that we would say is scripture that's that's very interesting i think just going off of what you're talking about how uh, well i I just want to kind of question like why trust the trustworthiness of the Bible rather than something like the Quran or, you know, some other thinker in history who has said, you know, this is the truth. Now trust it. Um, and I think, I think this also plays into kind of this contrast we've been making over like, uh, seeking truth in community versus isolating yourself 
because one element of God's word throughout history as testified in the Bible is that not only has he spoken, but he's, he's shown demonstrations of the trustfulness of his word. I think of, for example, like um, the early witnesses to Christ, the early, the writers of the new Testament weren't just, you know, writing some random stuff, but they were witnessing to Christ, the word made flesh, and they were witnessing to a resurrection that they saw firsthand. Um, And it reminds me of a quote by uh, Leslie Newbegin, who I just mentioned. He said something like, um, Jesus didn't come to write a book. He came to form a community around himself. Um, And it's from this community that like, you know, the church's witness has progressed. And I think that's also an interesting contrast between Montaigne, Montaigne, who's, you know, writing something. Um, But also like uh, it going to the old Testament then like Elijah versus uh, the followers of Baal, right. With the trying to light the fire. And he's like, no, I can trust my God so much, right. That I will douse this stack of wood in so much water and he will still light it, right? That sort of demonstration, I think, is clear throughout scripture from the beginning to the end. Yeah, yeah. So this is all good stuff. I like the point about the idea of who's the arbiter of truth. And uh, yeah, I think I want to emphasize the personal aspect to it, that when we say scripture is the arbiter of truth, we mean that in the sense that it's the word of the ultimate arbiter of truth. So it's the person behind it. It's God. And um, so when scripture talks about the word of God, um, you know, Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. It's really talking about the nature of God. Um, and the next half of that verse says, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The trustworthiness of God's word points to the trustworthiness of God, or maybe it's vice versa. But uh, anyway, But then what does scripture say about our own words then? If scripture can provide a diagnosis of, if God's words can provide a diagnosis of his character, then what do our words say about us? Um, Tina, do you want to read Isaiah 6, 5? It's like a very famous verse. And I think, I think it, it really speaks to the heart of this. Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that that picture of unclean lips, I think. And then uh, what the the angel comes and, and touches a coal to his lips, right? And I think this is, I think this is sort of, tying a couple of things together one right is this idea of can we trust ourselves but and i think this image of unclean lips is the image and or an answer to that that says no right like our lips are not uh producing the trustworthy words right um and and that kind of goes also to the conversations we've had the last two weeks about original sin and um like uh, the justice of hell and punishment, right? And so again, right, it's this idea that uh, we are not trustworthy, right? That we are in our in our natural original state, fallen creatures, right? And in that comes that untrustworthiness. Um, but then the picture of the the coal touching his lips, right, is that idea of transformation, right? that you're being made clean, your lips are being cleansed, right? 
and that then is uh, like a changing of your heart, right? And this is kind of what we talked about two weeks ago. It's a changing of your heart such that your words now are clean. And so the image, <laughs> the little Epicurean image that your, your words are is no longer a reflection of kind of the, the badness within, but is now reflecting the goodness within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think scripture places great surprising emphasis on sins of speech um, in Paul's diagnosis of the human condition as being fallen in Romans 3. He cites a lot of verses from the Psalms and very many of those have to do with their words are deceitful, their words are treacherous. Um, and uh, could someone very quickly read Matthew twelve thirty six to 37? I can. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Yeah, and that's very heavy, um, because I can think of plenty of careless words I've said today, and I'm sure we all can. So with that in mind, with the fact with the fact in mind that when confronted with God's character, we can do nothing but say, "Look, woe is me! Um, I have, I'm, yeah, I have unclean lips. I'm in a people of unclean lips." Um, Tim talked about transformation and transformation through Christ, through the gospel. And let's conclude with this question then. How should the gospel change the words we speak? Um, Any thoughts on that? And given the connection between words and the self, why does the gospel change the words we speak? First, I think there's like a very rich biblical theology to this question, to the words. I mean, we've been quoting scripture about the power and the meaning of words throughout the Bible, but even just starting at the beginning, not only does God create the world out of his word, out of speech, but he also, when he creates human beings, he grants them commandments to order their lives around. And then you have um, the serpent who comes up and questions the validity of God's word, saying, did God really say? And so you have this, and when human beings sin, obeying the serpent, you have the entrance of false words in, in human in the creation itself you have now a mixture of false and true words um the word of god contrasts with everything that's false and And then like the next image of words we get is the tower of babel right Mm. where all of a sudden like uh i mean it it can be questioned what exactly is going on but all of a sudden right god decides look you're no longer going to speak the same tongue right and divides people right so that they're no longer a, a whole community. And I think that that's an interesting image. Yeah, but just continuing on, like through you know the creation of, of Israel um, and through the sending of the Messiah, Christ, or through the sending of Christ to Messiah, or the same word, but translated differently, through the Messiah, Jesus, uh, you have God calling us once again through his word um, to obey his commandments, to, to orient our lives around the word, um, and therefore to reject all these false words that that contradict with that um and so i would say in a way it, it shows us the transformation sorry you said false words and i'm all, all i'm thinking is like the emphasis that paul especially puts on like false teachers yeah right and well what are false teachers doing they're saying false words right and that kind of ties back to like the serpent right well mm-hmm. did god really say right well and what these false preachers are saying is well did god really say no he said this right and they're corrupting the words that god gives us 
So I guess in short, we could say that the point of the gospel of Christ is that, well, as it relates to what we've been talking about today, is that the appearance of the true word of Christ, who is the word, um, transforms us, transforms the words we say so that we can speak words that build up, that create true community, that create relationship without the sort of, with some of the genuineness we see in Montaigne, but without necessarily all of the um, despair or uncertainty um, because we know the one who has spoken and we know that his word is true. Yeah, and I, um, I have bringing up a quote in Montaigne and Montaigne seems very skeptical about words. Later, in one of the later essays, he says, I have observed in Germany that Luther has left behind him as many schisms and decisions concerning the uncertainties about the Holy Scriptures. Our disputes are about words, and we put one question and receive a high full in return. And I like what Chase said previously about why um, the Bible, why that word is more trustworthy. It's also because it's combined with action. If we rely only on words, it's hard to just get an answer because um, you say a word and you ask, well, what does this word mean? And it goes into an endless cycle of substitutions that Montaigne talks about. So it's um, putting the word from God into action. And that's, I think that's the way to proceed. And uh, scripture too also places a lot of infamous emphasis on like our credence to know whether someone is saved right is you'll know them by their fruits right and i think those fruits are very much an image of the actions as opposed to just our words right it's like the tangible effects that you can see as uh i mean this kind of goes i'm fascinated by the um kind of the the uh the tripartite system of like human action as thought, word, and deed, right? And in this case, you can kind of like, you can judge the credence of words based on the the fruit, right? Based on the actions. And that will give you credence as to what the condition of the soul is or of the thoughts. And I think that's kind of an interesting relationship. Okay, great. Um, so let's go out with uh, a little bit of the humility of Montaigne's, you know, not... Let's speak truly. Let's speak genuinely. Let's not expect everyone to be super fascinated by us all the time because, you know, um, our words are Except not you, Artisher. all that great <laughs> and ourselves are not as deep and as interesting, but we are pointing to a truer word. And um, with what Tina said, let's remember that the true word should lead to action. So with that call to action, I think we're... I don't know how much time we have left, but Tim, you know this. Oh, we have as much time as you want to share, but it seems like you're wrapping up. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I don't know the podcast email information, but oh, someone here does. Man. So. Chase? I've actually forgotten oh, it. So. Man. Tina? Our social medias um, where we write down our words. We are on Instagram and Facebook at The Good Fight Pod. And you can also email us at your words. Send us your words. Yes, yes. We want your words. It's through interaction, relational words. Um, but email us with your words at witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. We would love to hear it. And I think Artisher has nothing else. So we'll we'll catch you next week. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.